Welcome to Sarian Strategic Partners Podcast, a podcast focused on pre-transaction planning strategies and commentary for founders, entrepreneurs, and executives. Our team's mission is to help ensure that you obtain the maximum net value from your life's work. We work with you to develop pre-transaction planning strategies to help position you for personal financial success by identifying key tax, estate, and gifting issues prior to a sale or exit of your company. I'm your host, Greg Sarian, CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. My name is Greg Sarian, and I'm the CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. And we are a financial consulting firm in Wayne that helps families looking for holistic advice on all aspects of their financial life. And I want to introduce my co-hosts and, and presenters this evening. Jackie Hines is a CPA with Stefano Slack and uh, my partner, Kevin. I'll introduce Jackie more formally uh, in a moment, but I want to spend a minute just sharing why, why this presentation tonight. And I think there are two reasons that are important. The first is throughout much of 2021, I know we were talking to you, our clients, about potential changes in these tax laws and, and the, the Build Back Better and all the discussion in Washington, D.C. about raising capital gain rates and income tax rates and, and lowering the estate tax threshold. And so we were reviewing this and watching it pretty closely. And really, at the end of the year, nothing happened. There were a few minor changes, but, but nothing happened. So we wanted to spend some time sharing with you what changes did occur but more importantly, just in a high tax environment that we're in and potentially going higher, what are some tax smart planning strategies that you should be thinking about throughout the year to reduce your tax liabilities? We wanted to share this information with you and unveil our 2022 tax planning white paper. And I also think that this webinar really embodies the spirit that, that our team embraces when we're trying to serve you. Listen, it's been a volatile market this year. You've gotten lots of communications. In fact, we just taped another video today you're going to get tomorrow morning on the choppiness and, and the challenges that we've seen both in the equity markets and fixed income markets. And so much of what happens in those, in those markets, we can make plans around strategies, but ultimately what the Fed does and what happens geopolitically really is out of our control. But what is in our control is giving you guidance and direction and information recognizing that, that many of you are in the highest marginal tax brackets and looking to us for guidance and clarity on ways to reduce your overall tax burden. So that's the spirit of tonight is we want to be proactive to educate you and inform you on some ideas that maybe you've heard of and just want to understand a little bit more about and hopefully share some new concepts. So uh, I'm going to introduce Jackie, who's going to speak about some of the important changes that, that are relevant in 2022. And then my partner, Kevin's going to talk about just some general tax smart planning strategies that you want to be thinking about as it relates to overall tax efficiency. And then I'm going to wrap up for those of you who may be facing a spike in income this year. Maybe it's exercising some options or sale of a business or sale of a company or a bonus situation. So what are some things to do to mitigate your tax liability in the uh, spike in the year when you have a spike in income? Please send us your questions. We do have a Q&A and a chat feature. So send us your questions because we will 
allow some time at the end uh, for questions. So I want to introduce Jackie Himes. Jackie is a Philadelphia native. She's an, she's an Eagles fan. She's a graduate of Widener University and uh, spent some time with, with firms like Clifton Larson Allen and Markham before joining Stefano Slack. So Jackie, thank you so much for your help tonight. And I'll turn the presentation to you to start. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Greg, for that wonderful introduction. We're going to briefly highlight some 2022 changes in income estate and gift tax thresholds. It's basically everything adjusted for inflation. This is a weird time of year to kind of do a presentation like this. Uh, we're excited to be here, but as you know, there's a lot of different information floating around in Congress. I and mean, you never know, you know, when they're going to pass something and when they'll make it retroactive, because that seems to be a new trend. So we'll jump right in. The estate exclusion is at 12 million 60,000 for 2022. This is something there's been a lot of talk about. Even with the current legislation, this is set to sunset in 2025. So people really want to start getting money out of their estate. One of the best ways to do that is through gifting. You can gift to your adult children, your grandchildren, your neighbors. If you'd like to gift to anyone, if you want anyone to have money besides the IRS, I can give you my information later. Um, but this year, you can gift $16,000 per recipient. So you and your husband are married. You want to gift $32,000 to one grandchild. You can do that completely tax-free. Standard deductions are up slightly. A lot of people like to talk about bunching itemized deductions. Um, it's not really a strategy that I'm a huge proponent of. However, um, with your charitable contributions, if you typically will write a check in December to your favorite charity, but you're not going to itemize this year, so you're not really going to get a tax benefit, maybe you hold off. Maybe you write that check in January, and then you make your typical donation in December again. So that way, next year, you can actually take advantage of that deduction. It's usually not the reason you donate to charity, but to each their own. It's still a tax planning strategy. As, as far as property taxes and mortgage interest, I think the, the regulations are pretty clear on that. And you should only be deducting the mortgage that's due in that year. Same with your property taxes. Um, that $10,000 cap on the last slide stays in effect. So unfortunately, your income taxes and your real estate taxes, you can't deduct more than $10,000. So if you live in New Jersey and you make hundred grand, you don't get to deduct any of your real estate taxes. <laughs> so moving on, business meals are still 100% deductible. Um, that's great. They're probably going to go back to 50% in 23. So let's take advantage of that this year. Again, take out your clients, take out your friends. Now, it should be for a business purpose. <laughs> Standard mileage rates are slightly adjusted for inflation. Nothing too exciting here. Again, this is your contribution retirement plan limits adjusted for inflation for 22. The big one is the compensation limit. We're up 15,000 there. So if you have an escort, you know, you're a small business owner, you might want to pay yourself a little more this year so you can put more in your retirement fund. I'll let Kevin cover that later. He's much more <laughs> <laughs> knowledgeable in that area. Education tax credits, the American Opportunity Credit, still 2,500 for this audience tonight. You're probably phased out of all of these lovely credits. However, for 22, we do have a very nice increase, as you can see at the bottom of this slide here, in the phase-out limit. Same with the advanced child tax credits. This was a great program. A lot of people were getting payments. A lot of our clients had to call and say, we didn't call, we went online and said, hey, please stop sending me these payments. I'm not eligible. A lot of people are looking for these payments in 2022. Right now, everything's reverting back. So there's no, no credit for dependents 17 and older, no child tax credit. And again, unfortunately, if you make a decent income, you're not getting these credits anyway. Child independent care credit, this was actually great for a lot of middle-class families. They had a nice 
$5,000 increase in the eligible expenses for 2021 only, unfortunately. Again, this would be bundled with the extension of the advanced child tax credit, but right now nothing has happened with the Build Back Better Act. Here we're just showing the income phase out limits. So as you could see, if your income's over $400,000, you could maybe get a partial credit, but once you hit $438,000, you're not going to get anything. The employee retention credit is definitely something a lot of people are curious in, a lot of people are eligible for. There are a couple of hurdles you have to meet to be eligible for this credit. The biggest one would be the gross receipts test. So in any calendar quarter in the year 2020, if your receipts compared to 2019 in the same quarter were at least 50% less, you could potentially be eligible for this credit. You might be saying, why do I care? 2020 is over. I'm too late. You can still go back and file an amended tax return and see if you qualify for this credit. So if you have questions about where should I qualify, what should I be looking at, feel free to reach out to those of us at Stefano Slack, reach out to Kevin, reach out to Greg. We would love to help you. We will you know, take a look, let you know if you're eligible, and we can move from there. Becky, how does an employer actually seek to claim this credit? It was filed with Form 941, which is part of the payroll tax credits. Okay. Um, but if you're going back to claim it now, your CPA will help you with that. Build Back Better is what everyone has loved to talk about. Caused a lot of stress last year. A lot of people were afraid of cap in limits being increased. The only thing I think we might see some movement on this year will be this cap on the state and local and real estate taxes. I think even, even the Democrats are now seeing, hey, this is punishing way more people than, than we intended. We were, they were going after the wealthy, but again, like the example I gave, if you work in New Jersey and make $100,000, you're not going to deduct any of your real estate taxes. So a lot of people are saying, what's the benefit of owning a home versus renting? It's no longer a tax shelter. You know, it could affect all sorts of parts of the economy, but we shall see what Congress does. They, this bill would extend the 2021 advanced child tax credit to 22, the same with the dependent and child independent care credit. Another thing I think we will see movement on in 22 is the expansion and additional credits for renewable and cleaner energy. Everybody's on the green bandwagon. This, this is going to get support, I believe, from both parties. So I think we'll see some movement here. And hopefully they'll use the salt cap as a negotiation tool. Now, this is something I think our audience is very interested in. Um, these are some of the taxes that will hit our higher income individuals if, if this bill goes through as is. Some of the rumors, small business stock, I'm not going to go into detail on that. Um, I think if that applies to you, reach out to us. That's something you know. That's not something that will apply to anybody. The net investment income tax, right in the name, it says investment income tax. So this was meant to be a tax on our interest, dividends, and passive investments. They are now saying, hey, if you're single and make over 400000 or if you're married and make over half a million, we're going to now subject to your income derived from your ordinary trader business, which in my mind is your active trader business, to an investment income tax. Kind of seems like it's not the original intent, a little far-reaching, but we shall see. The surcharge on high-income individuals, estates, and trusts, this could be huge. You're saying $10 million, it's kind of a high number. What if you sell your business? You know, Your family's been running a shop for 50 years and you've built up equity and that's worth quite a bit right now. Th this tax could really hurt you. So this is something you want to pay attention to and you want to plan for. So Jackie, based on your, your knowledge and your networking with your peer group, you know, you're right. These are the three things we're getting questions on. I actually had a question on 1202 today. Oh, really? You know, is it, is it going to stay? Is it going to go? Will it be retroactive? 
most of what we're reading is that given it's an election year, the like there's just not the political will in Washington to advance these types of more onerous tax liabilities. That's most of what we're getting. What are you hearing in the CPA circles? I'm hearing pretty much the same thing. There's certain things like the salt cap where people are maybe like, hey, this is something we could use to negotiate and come together on. But I think it's going to be very, very hard to get these new surtaxes and and things that are a little bit heavy handed. Any movement on this this year in the election year midterm? Jackie, that was really helpful. And again, I'm going to remind our audience, I know we're going through this these slides rather quickly. So please use your chat feature, use your Q&A feature. Uh, we want to make sure we're respectful of getting you what you want to derive from this time tonight. So please ask questions. So I'm going to turn over to Kevin. Kevin Wager is uh, is one of our partners, been with us almost five years. Kevin's a certified financial planner and accredited investment fiduciary. So Kevin, please help share with us some ideas that we've been talking to our clients about, yeah. about just being tax smart with your overall planning situation. Thank you, Greg. And definitely. So uh, these next five strategies are, are really just focused on, on being more tax efficient, optimizing your overall tax picture. And, and I think every, anybody should be thinking about them, especially if we do see ourselves uh, approaching a higher tax environment. It's still a lot of uncertainty around that, that aspect, but these are all definitely things that anyone can think about and consider. So first is, is IRA to Roth conversions. So what that is, is moving dollars from a pre-tax IRA to an after-tax IRA. And so why might you do that? Before I get to that, let me first just take a step back and describe what exactly those two, the differences between the two IRAs are. So uh, traditional IRAs, you get a tax deduction in the year that you make those contributions. So you're essentially deferring the taxes out into the future. All growth is tax-free, but when you make withdrawals in the future, that's considered ordinary income to you. And the IRS actually requires you to take distributions uh, now at age 72 because they want their cut as well. So traditional IRAs, you're getting the, the tax deduction up front. You're paying tax in the future. Roth IRAs, you're paying the tax up front. It's growing tax-free. And then withdrawals in the future are tax-free. So it's the timing of the taxes is what's important here. So why might somebody want to accelerate the, the tax nature um, of their retirement accounts? And I think it's it, it would make sense for you know those pre-retirees or retirees that through a, a, a thoughtful planning process has determined that maybe they might not need all of their required distributions in the future. And if we do think taxes in the future are going to be higher, maybe it does make sense to accelerate some of that income in, in years now, lock in some of the rates at today's rates, kind of hedge your bet, so to speak. And that's another benefit of these conversions, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. You can do partial conversions over, over a couple of years. And the timing is also important because there's an opportunity with kind of leveraging your current tax bracket. So let's, for example, let's say your, your 2021 was, was your last year. You retired in 2021. That was your last high income year, high tax bracket year. And now maybe you're going to go through a couple period or a couple of years where you're in a lower bracket, maybe in your 60s prior to when Social Security kicks in prior to when you begin to take withdrawals from your IRA, because that's income to you as well. So there might be a period of, of low income that you can take advantage of with accelerating these conversions. And then the last benefit with, with IRA to Roth conversions is, is we, we talk to our clients a lot about it as a gifting strategy. It's really a powerful gifting strategy because 
the best account type to a beneficiary to inherit is a Roth IRA because those dollars they're going to they're going to receive they're going to have to take them out over a 10 year period but all tax has been paid so they're they're not going to have any tax liability at all versus a traditional IRA they're going to inherit that as well but they're going to have to take it over out over a 10 year period and pay full ordinary income over that time period so it's a really smart gifting strategy as well so moving ahead health savings accounts so these are really powerful tools if you are currently enrolled in a high deductible health plan so health savings accounts or HSAs are actually the only triple tax advantaged account out there. And what I mean by that is, so similar to a traditional IRA, your, your contributions, you're going to get a tax deduction. And, and just so you're aware, the, the max contribution limits for uh, 2022 for a single filer is $3,850, or it's $3,650. Um, a married filing or a, a family contribution limit is $7,300. Under age 55, over age 55, it's $8,300. Contributions are tax deductible. You can invest these dollars in mutual funds and index funds. So all growth is tax-free. And then when you withdraw them in the future, similar to a Roth IRA, the withdrawals are tax-free. Specific to this account, the uh, withdrawals need to be used for qualified medical expenses. So triple tax deferred. And because of this feature that you can roll the dollars over, they, they don't go away similar to a, a flexible spending account, which is these are often kind of confused with a flexible spending account. If you don't use those dollars in the, in the current year, you lose them. But with an HSA, you keep them. And, and so the, strata, the, the unique uh, strategy presents itself where you can kind of chunk this HSA. Ideally, if, if cash flow permits, you can pay current year health costs out of pocket and then continue to let this account grow and compound over time. And if you were able to do this for 5, 10, 15 years, you're going to have a sizable bucket of money that's specifically earmarked for future health expenses. Because the reality is most people are going to have higher medical expenses in the future than they do today. So really, really smart strategy to consider. Uh, so gifting to loved ones in low brackets. So taking advantage of, of low tax brackets. So I think when we talk about tax brackets, it's, it's really focused on income brackets. And people don't talk as much about different capital gains brackets. And there actually is a 0% long-term capital gain bracket. So for individuals that are earning uh, approximately $41,000, single filer, uh, $83,000 uh, married couple, they're, they're going to fall in a 0% long-term capital gains bracket. So if there are loved ones, maybe adult children or even aging parents that, that you're supporting financially, uh, and then you want to help them, it, there's a, an opportunity to use investments, specifically ones with embedded gains within them versus cash as an optimal way to satisfy this gift. So what I mean by that is, is a quick example. Let's say you have a, a young adult child who's in grad school or maybe even an entry-level job, not making a lot of money right now. Um, and they're over 24 years old. Prior to that, the kitty tax rules apply. So that kind of eliminates some of the benefits here. But if, if you were to want to give them $20,000, let's say in one of your non-retirement accounts, you have XYZ company stock that over the years, your, uh, your cost for that investment is $10,000. Over the years, it's grown to $20,000. You can journal or gift that security to a brokerage account in their name. They can sell it. And if they're around that $41,000 mark, they're going to pay 0% capital gain. And so the, the added benefit to you is you could then take that cash buy back the stock, which ultimately resets your cost basis. 
So really, really smart to, to leverage low, low tax brackets if, if that's possible. Uh, backdoor Roth IRAs. So some of the benefits I talked about before um, with Roth IRAs is, is you're going to get that, uh, get these assets in a, in a tax deferred account that we're going to have tax-free growth and tax-free withdrawals. Because those benefits are so great, um, there are unfortunately income restrictions to allow you to contribute to a Roth IRA directly. If you are a single filer um, making 144,000, excuse me, your modified adjusted gross income is $144,000, you're completely phased out from being able to contribute to a Roth IRA directly. And if you're a married filer, uh, I believe the number is 214,000, you're completely phased out. So the, the strategy is, so unfortunately, if you're a high earner, you can't uh, contribute directly to a Roth IRA, but there is this side door, this back door option, so to speak. So if you don't have any other account types, and, and the reason for that is, is because if you commingle deductible IRA contributions with non-deductible IRA contribution, and then you make withdrawals in the future, the pro rata rules come into play. And that and that's, gets really complex. So that, that might be a, a topic that we could spend a lot of time on at a future date. But ideally, the, the strategy here is if you don't have any other Roth IRAs, uh, or excuse me, any other IRAs, you open up a traditional IRA, you make non-deductible contributions, and then you journal that or, or you just roll that into a Roth IRA. And so there's no income limitations on this. And this would allow you to get more dollars in that Roth IRA account. And then the last thing that people should be thinking about, specifically in a, in a higher tax environment, is, is designing an investment portfolio that is tax efficient. And so oftentimes, we, we spend most of our time talking about asset allocation, which is very important. The, the right mix of stocks, bonds, alternative investments, cash, um, all of that is important to, to design a portfolio that appropriately reflects a client's risk tolerance, their goals, their time horizon. Um, but oftentimes, a portfolio isn't just retirement accounts or it's not just taxable accounts. It's a mix of both. And in a perfect world, there are certain investments that should go in each of those accounts. So for tax-preferred accounts, this is where, because it's a tax shelter and, and you're getting tax-free growth and then ultimately either taxable or tax-free withdrawals, less tax or, or tax inefficient strategies should be earmarked here or could be earmarked here. Investments that generate ordinary interest income, which is taxed ordinary income rates, maybe more um, active strategies where short-term capital gains are realized. Short-term capital gains are taxed at ordinary income rates versus long-term capital gains rates. And then even private investments that produce K-1s, uh, more complicated tax filing there. So less inefficient earmarked for tax preferred accounts. And then when we think about taxable accounts, this is where ideally tax-free municipal bonds are super smart. They're going to generate income that's, that's tax-free at the federal and state level. Ideally, stocks and ETFs that generate qualified dividends because those are taxed at uh, capital gains rates, the more favorable capital gains rates. And then ideally low turnover investments because if we do generate capital gains within a taxable account, we want them to be long-term versus short-term because long-term are taxed at the more favorable rates. So if there's any questions about these kind of five strategies, happy to go into more detail. Great. Thank you, Kevin. That was really helpful, very clear. So as we get close to wrapping up here, I want to spend a few minutes talking about what are things you can do when there's a situation where there's a spike in income. So a lot of our work is around pre-transaction planning. 
And, and, and last year was our busiest year with this because of anticipation, expectation that tax rates might go up. So we saw a lot of people who had equity compensation. They were pulling the trigger on stock options or trying to sell businesses. So if, if there is a spike in income because of a bonus that you receive from 21 payable this year, you have equity in your, in your company, it's vesting and that's taxable. Maybe you're, you are designed to pair back on some of your company's exposure to your company equity. Maybe you're selling a piece of property. Real estate markets are, are through the roof um, across the country. And we had several clients who said, I just, I'm selling because the time is right to do it. Or you're selling a company, as Jackie alluded to earlier. All of these represent a spike in income. And we're going to touch upon a few things you can do to reduce your tax liability in that situation. So the first is really interesting strategy, marrying tax planning with philanthropy. One of the things that we really enjoy seeing in our work is when clients get to a place in their life when they're really interested in giving back to organizations and causes that are important to them. And so when you go through a spike in income, there's a vehicle here that's that's really appropriate, really powerful way to mitigate your tax liability and allow some monies to be bucketed for future charitable giving. It's called a donor advised fund. And our partner, Ray, affectionately calls it a charitable waiting room. So the way a donor advised fund works is it's it's an account like, a, like an IRA, where if you have a, again, you sell a business, you pull the trigger on some stock options, and now there's a seven-figure income of them. And you're thinking, what can I do to, to minimize my tax burden? So let's say in a normal year, you give away $10,000 to a variety of nonprofit organizations that are important to you. And so logically, over 10 years, you would give away $100,000. So if you have a spike in income, and this is going to be a very high income year for you, there's a way you could take $100,000, put it into a donor advised fund. You receive a charitable deduction in the year of the event. But here's the good part. You've got the rest of your life to actually distribute those funds to nonprofits that you care about. And you don't get a second deduction when you do that. You've captured your deduction when you fund it. Here's the other benefit of donor advised funds is that you can fund them with embedded gain or low basis securities. So go back to my analogy and my example of, of wanting to fund uh, your donor advised fund with $100,000 in 2022. But go through your portfolio, and maybe you have an index fund or a mutual fund or a stock that you bought a few years back for $50,000 that's worth $100,000 today. You can take the $100,000 security, half of which is gains, put in your donor advised fund. You get a tax deduction for the $100,000, and now that donor advised fund sells that security totally tax-free. If you still like that security, if it's appropriate for you, take $100,000 of cash from your transaction, you buy that security back, you establish a brand new basis for uh, charitable gift for, for tax purposes. So it's kind of like charitable money laundering. You establish a brand new basis. All those capital gains are washed away. Your deduction is 60% of your adjusted gross income if you fund your donor advised fund with cash, or your deductions up to 30% of your adjusted gross income if you use the example I did where you fund it with security. So very powerful tax and philanthropic planning tool. The next one uh, is also a way to, to do some good with uh, a change in income. This is for Pennsylvania residents. 
Now this, to be clear, this does not lower your Pennsylvania state income tax obligation, but it allows you to redirect it to an organization that you care about. It's called the Pennsylvania Education Improvement Tax Credit, or EITC. So again, you have a spike in income in an abnormally high year. Let's say there is a private school or a religious school or a charter school or a parochial school that you have an affinity towards, that you care about. You can take, make a contribution to that school. And if you make a two-year contribution, so let's say you do $10,000 a year for two years, 9,000 of that 10 is a direct offset of your Pennsylvania income tax, state income tax liability. The other thousand is a federal income tax deduction. Or maybe it's just a one year you say, this is that normally high income year for me, but I want to do something to the, the school or my kids. 10, private school, you can take a 75% credit on your PA taxes. The other 25% is a federal income tax deduction. So it allows you to redirect your monies away from Harrisburg into someplace that you care about if that's something you choose to do. Now, the next one I want to talk about is, this is a little bit different, and I want to explain this one has some risk to it. This just started last year. They're called Qualified Opportunity Zone Funds, or QOFs. And they started in, in or around, around 2021. So if you have a, a capital gain, so this doesn't work for income tax. This works for a capital gain. So you sold a piece of real estate, sold a business, um, had some options exercised, and they were, were sold as capital gains. If within 180 days, you redirect those monies to one of these qualified opportunities. So these are real estate investments, indirect real estate. Now, again, I mentioned the risk because the word opportunity suggests these are, un these are developing areas. These are in areas where there is growth potential, but these are not yet developed commercial real estate entities. So understand that this is um, a longer term strategy as a way to then defer capital gains because if you do this in 2022, so you have a capital event in January, you've got essentially 180 days to move money into a qualified opportunity zone. If you do that, you then defer the capital gain tax for five years on that original transaction. But then where you put the opportunity zone money, if that project does well and you hold it for 10 years, all the appreciation on that is totally tax-free, capital gain tax-free. So a little different, a little bit um, higher level of risk, a longer time horizon because to really derive the full benefit, you need to leave that money in there for the full 10 years. But something worth thinking about. And the last one is one that many people don't really understand that the long-term tax benefits of 529s, both at the federal uh, and if you're a Pennsylvania resident, the state level. So we all know how expensive college is. And so if you're a Pennsylvania resident, you put money into a 529, as Jackie mentioned, you could do 16,000 per beneficiary. So a married couple could do 32,000 per child, per grandchild. But you also get a Pennsylvania income tax deduction. So that's roughly call it $900 per beneficiary off of your state income tax bill. That money then grows tax-free. So you get the tax deduction up front, grows tax-free, and if used for qualified higher education expenses, it can be used up to $10,000 for um, private you know, nursery school, middle school, high school, and then of course, up to $32,000 you can fund for private university. So 
very smart way to get some tax advantage growth. We often get the question though, what happens if there's money left over? I don't want to overfund my 529. We agree. If you overfund on the growth portion, not your original investment, but if there's appreciation and you take it out for a non-educational purpose, you pay income tax on that appreciation and a 10% penalty. So what are some other things that people are doing to avoid uh, that penalty? So number one, it's your money, right? So we see people as they move into retirement, they take art history classes, uh, they, they, they take other types of classes or get another degree. You can use that money for your own education. You can also use that money for a loved one. So maybe your children are well positioned and they're funded for college, but you've got nieces or nephews uh, that, that could use some help. You can switch the beneficiary to a niece or a nephew. But then thirdly, you can you can retitle it, change it to a grandchild. So don't feel like if there's extra money in the 529, you've got to pay the tax and penalty. You can redistribute, rename beneficiaries and get some benefits uh, that way. That covers most of our plan presentation. And before we open for questions, I do want to uh, let you know, we do have, our team is prepared each year, and I know you can't really see it here, but our 2022 tax planning white paper, where we go over all the things we talked about today, tax planning strategies, ways to minimize your tax liability throughout the year. And we'll be sending this to all of our clients with this uh, taped presentation. It's got to go through compliance, the videos. So we'll get that out to you probably by late this week, early next. And those guests who are on uh, the phone or on the, on the call today, and you would like to get this white paper, you see our emails, uh, my email, Kevin's email, please email us. We'd be happy to email this white paper to you uh, and answer any questions that you have. So I do see a couple of questions and one of them, maybe Kevin, you can address, which is what is the time frame to use the monies on health savings accounts? So in your analogy, Kevin, you mentioned People can uh, let that money cook and grow. What are the what are the timeframes or the the benefits of using it, or when do they need to use that money uh, over time? Yeah, so it's it's really dependent on health expenses that arise in the future. So it, it, there's you can use the money at any time over your lifetime. I believe it then goes to a, a spouse if you were to pass away. I don't think it goes to the next generation. Don't think you can add beneficiaries to it. That might be a, a good follow-up question. But really, I mean, it's 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 as needed. It's it's as needed on a needs basis. Um, and I've also read that even if you don't, uh, let, let's play the scenario out that let's just say you, you're in your 70s or 80s and you're just and you have this bucket of money and you're looking for tax-free income. And let's say you have a saved receipt of a medical expense that you had in years past. You can use that receipt as a qualified medical expense to withdraw from your HSA in a tax-free manner. So, Great. yeah, it's it's pretty a, it's a it's a dynamic account. Great. So another question: Can I invest in traditional IRA if I have a four hundred one k plan with my employer? Can I invest in a traditional IRA? If I have a four hundred one k with my employer. So the answer is you can, but that. IRA contribution is non-deductible. So if you're covered by a plan and you, you have a certain level of income, and again, we have those thresholds in our white paper, I believe it's over, and maybe Jackie, jump in if you know these off the top of your head, but I believe it's over 
you know, $150,000 for a married couple, that renders your IRA contribution non-deductible. We tend not to be big fans of non-deductible IRA contributions because Kevin mentions pro rata record keeping because you're never going to be taxed on the original money you put in. So say you put the $6,000 in, but then it, it grows, it appreciates. You're not taxed on the six, but you will be taxed as ordinary income on the appreciation. And there's just a, it's a different set of, of reporting requirements. So when, when, when you are retired and, and you're starting to take this money out, uh, it's different than the simple 1099 because you've got to account for what was my original investment versus what was my gain. So it's a little bit more complicated from a tax perspective. But thank you. The thing I'll just add is, is oftentimes you could unintentionally tax the, the same dollars twice. That, that's ultimately one of the, the, the things, the negative things that could happen um, with commingling those deductible and non-deductible contributions. So that's why it's just best to avoid it. So we do have another question. What are the tax advantages or disadvantages when an elderly person uses a trust to distribute money to children upon their death? So benefits of being a type of trust, revocable versus a living versus an irrevocable. So I think the answer is really, are we trying to avoid income tax or are we trying to avoid estate tax? Because typically there is no tax benefit if this trust is revocable because it all goes back into the decedent's estate. So if a couple has a revocable living trust and their assets exceed the estate tax thresholds, which as Jackie mentioned, are about $24 million now. Because that trust is revocable, revoke means the decedent can pull it back in, they have access to the money. They That does not stay outside of their estate. Now, if that trust is an irrevocable trust and they funded it and set it up and that money is outside of their reach and purview, that does avoid inheritance taxes. So I think that when you're thinking of, of guiding your, your aging parents or you're considering, you're retired, you're considering setting up a trust, I think you want to really understand, am I trying to avoid my children paying income taxes or am I trying to avoid my children paying estate taxes? Because it's inheritances are income tax-free. And so the, the trust that you would probably want to do to avoid the inheritance tax are irrevocable trusts. Well, thank you. Uh, those were the questions we had. We really appreciate all of you taking some time out of your evening. Again, our clients will be receiving this uh, video program and as well as the 22 white paper. And any of our guests that would like to receive this uh, video as well, just shoot us an email and we'd be happy to send it along. Thank you. Seren Strategic Partners is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. 
Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Sarian Strategic Partners and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Sarian Strategic Partners and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.